Exodus chapter 20 and Ezekiel 18. You're going to want to be in both of those. Exodus 20 and Ezekiel 18. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for freedom. Uh, We live in a country where freedom is something we celebrate and should. But we know that it came at a cost and a price was paid. And we know it took courage to have that happen. So we thank you for all the men and all the women and all the families that have been a part of that. And uh, God, we pray you'd put your hand upon this country and cause us more and more to, uh, to use the freedom we have uh, in ways that are righteous. Father, I pray today that you would help us to understand something even greater. Jesus, that you died so we could be free. And may we, Lord, live lives that are righteous and pure and holy. And may we relish and celebrate the freedom we have in you. And God, I pray against bondage today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus did die to set us free. Christ came so we might have freedom. And that sacrifice ought to be something that you and I get excited about and live out. But what we've been talking about is a lot of people seem to struggle with it. Some in small ways and some in great ways. And and I want to have you think about one of the areas that you and I may all need to struggle with. Maybe you said, well, I've been here and I heard the sermon on addiction, but I don't have an addiction problem. Uh, But by the way, even if you do, we're going to talk about some of that today. Uh, But but what we're about to talk about will still apply to you, even if it doesn't apply in that way. Uh, The bottom line is, is we all in big ways and little ways need to find God's freedom being enhanced in our life. And I want you to think about it. Uh, Some years ago, and I've been doing ministry a lot of years, God brought into my wife, Pam, and mine's life uh, two sisters. And I'll never forget one night, it was a pretty emotional night because something had happened in their home before they came. And when they got to us, uh, they were already upset. And then, then God began to move and open up our ability to see into what was going on. Uh, the mother uh, was a very cynical, negative woman. I didn't realize the realm of negativity she was pouring into her daughter's life. She was literally a, a joy robber, and she knew how to crush their spirit. But this one, uh, the younger sister, I'll never forget her sitting there crying. And she literally looks at me, and she says, I hate her. And her sister goes, don't hate her. And, and then she said these words. She said, I am never going to be like her. Well, years later, guess who's like her? And, and she is. She has now uh, taken on, all, I mean, it's literally like she's mirrored her mom. She's negative, cynical, judgmental. She's had an ability to to push everybody in life away from her, and it's always everybody else's fault. Uh, Her children today can't stand her. And uh, I look at that, and I'm just thinking, God, that is so sad, because she's a Christian. But she's living with that bondage, with this, what we call the family curse. Now, by the way, I want to tell you what's interesting. The other sister's anything but that. The other sister today has a wonderful marriage. She has amazing children. Uh, She has a joy in life. She's anything but cynical and negative. But but here's what I think is so interesting. Here's what I believe is why. Both of them are Christians. But one sister has focused on Jesus and the other sister focused on her mom. Now she focused on her mom by saying, I don't want to be like her. But the more you focus on somebody and you don't want to be like them, you end up like them. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but, but when you golf, 
Uh, uh, there's a guy in our church, Albert. Albert Kilgore is an amazing person to golf with. And when all of us get out and golf with Albert, well, guess what? We all play better because he has got just such a pure swing. And the more you focus on that and watch it, I mean, it's like, oh, and you just find yourself rising to the occasion. And then when Albert's not with us and I go up there, the poor guys who have to focus on me. And, and, and it just falls apart. Well, you know what? God, God starts telling us about that. Our families can affect us more than you know. Look what it says in Exodus 20 in the midst of the Ten Commandments. And it says this in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now here's where we're going. Get ready for the next line. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Now, when you read that, you might go, wait, wait, what is the Lord saying here? What is he getting at? Why would God visit iniquity down? Now, what you need to know is God is not talking about something he wants to do. The last part of the line is what he wants to do. He wants to show loving kindness to us. He wants it to go for thousands of generations down. But God is warning you and I about something. That that in our nature, we may be living out the sins of our past. The sins of our parents. The sins of our grandparents. And by the way, even scarier, you and I might be handing that down to generation after generation. What God is saying is this. He's saying what sin a family has embraced can be visited down to the next generation and the next generation. This family curse that's there. And God doesn't want us to live that way. God doesn't want it to be that way. But we know it's true. By the way, studies are showing it's true. For instance, alcoholism. Uh, uh, Dr. Ferris of the Midtown Center of Treatment and Research said this. He said the child of an alcoholic is four times more likely to either become an alcoholic or become a substance abuser than a child who's not been raised in a family like that. It's visited down. By the way, there are some people who believe it's physically when it comes to alcoholism visited down. That you have a propensity to it. And you're ready for this. That might even go to three generations. That, that in other words, if uh, um, I and if someone was raised in the home of an alcoholic, there's something physical that makes you trigger that quicker. And even if the next generation says no to alcohol, there's something in your DNA that picks it up again. And the grandchildren might, with the taking even one drink, find themselves locked into it. But no matter what, we do know that the people who are raised in a home like that are more likely to abuse. How about this? Uh, obesity. Uh, The University of Michigan Health System states this, that a child who is raised by an obese parent is 80% more likely to be obese than one who's not. 80% more likely. Uh, It's visited down, that sin. How about abuse itself? Physical or mental or abuse, but especially physical abuse. Crisis Connection states that 49 to 70% of children raised in a home with physical abuse become abusive. And that compares with 7% of the general population. In other words, it's 7% of people who have been raised in a home without abuse being a part of it become abusive. But 49 to 70% of those raised in a home who've had physical abuse tend to carry that on. Uh, And we see that go on again and again and again. And God warns us about that. He warns us about what can occur that way. And that we don't want to visit down on our children. Because it creates havoc. It creates harm. By the way, it can kill. 
It can kill off who we are. That bondage can literally destroy us uh, uh, from the inside out. Jesus talked in John 10, verse 10, that there's a thief who's come to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I, he said, have come that you might have life abundantly. God said, I want you to know in Exodus 20, this is visited down uh, to three generations, but I want to visit something else down. I want to visit down loving kindness upon them. And God's great desire is for you and I to be free from that. But we're going to have to make some intentional choices to be free. Uh, Bill Hybels is one of my favorite pastors. And uh, he uh, leads uh, a church in Chicago, Illinois called Willow Creek Community Church. And one time Bill was sharing something that, man, I just uh, got to tell you, it, it grabbed me. It was a very personal testimony. And he was talking about a time when his wife was going to be going away with her, her, her parents, his in-laws, on a month-long cruise. Uh, their, their family loved uh, uh, you know, yacht sailing, and, and they loved cruises. And, and so what happened is they were going to be going away on that. And so what happened is he was going to be taking her down to let her off. Well, the bags are all packed. They're sitting in the living room, and he comes walking out. And his son, at that time, he was in sixth grade, looks at his mom and goes, Mom, Mom, I'm going to miss you. And he starts to cry. And he runs over and throws his arms around her. Sixth grade young boy throws his arms around her mom and starts crying. Mom, I'm going to miss you so much. It's going to seem like forever. And Bill said he stood there. And all of a sudden, this anger starts welling up within him. He's looking off. He's fighting off the ears to say, stop being a crybaby. And this emotion is just pouring out. But his wife's just eating it up. And so he stands there frustrated and knowing he has to get his wife on this uh, uh, boat before his day can begin. And so it's taking forever because the boy's just, you know, blubbering out emotion. And they finally get the bags in the car and he finally gets them in the car. And as they're driving along, the, the boy is saying again, mom, oh, I love you so much and I'm going to miss you. And she again's just eating it up. Well, they get to the, the boat and, and he's starting to put everything on and he finally gets ready to say goodbye. Well, the boy again turns and just starts crying. Mom. Mom, I'm glad you're going to be with grandpa and grandma, but oh, and, and he stands there and he's again fighting off, just yelling and saying, be quiet. Uh, uh, and, and, and he's thinking, man, I, I'm just, oh, I've had it with this. Then they finally get in the car and his little son looks up at him and says, dad, can we go out to the end of the jetty to say goodbye to mom one more time? And he thought, no, no, I, oh, I, he you know, really wants to say, why are you like this? You're like your mom, you know. And so they get in the car and he thought, okay, all right, let's do it. So he drives out to the end of the jetty. They're standing there. It seems like forever for the boat to start coming their way. Finally, it's coming. And his son is standing there screaming, yelling, mom, and she sees and she comes walking out and, and they're looking and he's yelling, mom, I love you. I love you. Oh, I'm going to miss you. Mom, I love you. And the mom knowing Knowing how hard it was on Bill to do this, she looks at him and she mouths the word, thank you, thank you. And, and he sees it and it's like, oh, it begins to melt his heart. And he stands there and he's going, Lord, why am I so angry? And it was almost like the lights went on more than he could know. His dad was always very stern with him. His dad was very hard with him. His dad was always, you've got to be a success. His dad believed you don't show emotions. Almost never was he hugged. And uh, he realized, you know what? There's something inside me that hates emotion. And they got in the car and he looked at his son and he said, son, I, I want to tell you, if I've been hard on you in your life, I'm sorry. He said, you know, when I was growing up, my father never allowed me to express emotion like you just did. And his son looked at him and said, dad, really? He said, yeah, I just wasn't allowed. 
And his sixth grade son looks and said, Dad, that would just kill me. And Bill Hybel said, you know what? It did kill me. It killed me. And then it's all of a sudden, he embraced something he never had before. When he was sharing with this, he said, I want to tell you something. I am emotionally undeveloped. I am emotionally stunted. And even to this day, I have to remind myself that's not who God wants me to be. I I have taken that family curse and I have unleashed it on my wife and it almost wrecked our marriage. I have put it on my children and it began to kill off the very joy and nature that God wanted in them. And and he said, it's something that I hated and how I was raised, but now I I find myself still wanting to act out on that. And he said, "I, I just don't ever want to be that way, but I find it happening. Now, you know what? I don't know if you can identify with where we're going right now, but I want to say that, that maybe uh, uh, it's a huge thing, that a huge, horrible thing that your family has placed upon you and you find yourself living it out. Or maybe it's something small and you need to recognize it quickly. You know why? Because in every generation, it keeps growing. In every generation, it keeps growing. There's an old saying that what the parents excuse, the children abuse. And we need to understand God's warning us about that. And if you and I are living that out today, we need to be set free from it. But, but if you are beginning to enhance it, and, and you need to be careful not to hand that on. And God's great desire is for us to be free from it. But God warns us about it. That's why he says that in Exodus. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Now, by the way, God not only didn't tell us that, he showed it. Abraham, who's one of the most godly men who ever lived, had a problem with lying. He did it out of fear. And I put it in your notes so you can go study this later. But what happened is Abraham had a beautiful wife named Sarah and he's coming into Egypt and he says to Sarah, his wife, he says, please don't tell them you're my wife because if they find out you're my wife, they'll kill me so they can take you. Say you're my sister. Well, they're not in Egypt very long and Pharaoh's servants see how beautiful she is and they go and rave about her. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, it's interesting. The word that's used is the Hebrew word halal, where we get the idea of hallelujah. They're literally praising how beautiful she is. And, and Pharaoh has her brought to him and he has her put within his concubines. And now he's going to take her sexually. And so Abraham has put her in a horrible situation and God has to rescue. And when God rescues her, Pharaoh says, why would you lie? Why would you do this? And he said, well, I was afraid you'd kill me. Well, later on, God tells Abraham something amazing. He says, I am going to make you the father of many nations through Sarah. And he gives this great promise. But what happens is they go into another area and a man named Abimelech is there. And, and you know what Abraham does again? He says, lie. Say you're my sister. And so what happens is Abimelech takes her, not knowing that, but God comes to Abimelech in a dream. And he said, surely you're a dead man for what you're about. And, and in the dream, Abimelech says, Lord, would you kill someone who did not know? He lied to me. And when he wakes up, he calls Abraham and he said, she's not your sister. And and he said, why would you do such a thing? He said, I was afraid you'd kill me. And he said, you you know, and now he goes, but I'm not totally lying. She's actually my half sister. So he thought it was a half lie, which by the way, a half lie is still a lie. And, uh, And so that's what he did. And he did it to protect himself. Well, he ends up having a son named Isaac. Isaac also marries a very beautiful woman and they end up traveling to the very place that Abimelech is. And when they get there, guess what Isaac says? He goes, tell everyone you're my sister. By the way, she's not even his half sister. Now he's really lying. And, and he says that. 
And then I love what happens. It says that Abimelech looks out his window and sees that in, in the Hebrew word there, it's kind of interesting, that Isaac and his wife are sporting together. Now, it doesn't mean they were playing tennis. Uh, they, and he calls them in and says, surely, please tell me she's not your sister with what I saw you doing. And, and he goes, well, you know, and he goes, you lied. Why would you lie? Well, then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And guess what? Jacob starts lying. Matter of fact, he was one of the best liars of all. And and Jacob deceives his father out of selfishness. The first two did it out of fear. But he's now passed on a lying mentality out of selfishness and wanting to get what he wants. And then Jacob has 12 sons who now also, uh, 11 of them become one of the worst liars ever. And they lie so they can commit murder. And they lie out of selfishness uh, so they can rip off their father. And we see this keep being propagated. By the way, when we come to another one of the most godly men who ever lived, David. Remember what David did? Almost all of you know. David looked out one night and saw Bathsheba, and and he had her brought to him, even though he knew that Bathsheba was married to one of his dearest friends. And he took her and committed adultery with her. And then when she became pregnant, he was going to be found out he had the man murdered. Well, then what happens later on is you have David's son, Amnon. Amnon looks at his sister, his sister, and he's so filled with lust for her, he takes her. And, and now he's propagating the sin and blowing it to a whole new level. That's what happens with this idea of visiting it down. And then Absalom, the brother, ends up uh, murdering him in a very deceitful way. And then he decides he's going to murder David and take David's wives. And then David has a son named Solomon also who takes the whole idea of sexual indiscretion to a level that almost no one's ever committed. And he passes that on to his children. And, and where's the point? This God is showing us something. He's warned us in Exodus about it, but he's telling us that if you and I don't put an end to this, if you and I don't face up to it, if you and I don't say no more and begin to focus on Christ, that it's going to be something we live with. Now, by the way, God warns us about that, but also God gives us an amazing promise. And if you're in Ezekiel 18, I want you to see it. Ezekiel chapter 18, look what it says. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean? It's verse two. What do you mean by using the proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, why are you saying it's if if I'm the dad and I eat a sour grape and all the kids are cringing? He said, why are you saying that? And what does the proverb mean? Is that when the father eats sour grapes, he passes on this cringing attitude to the children. In other words, the sin is visited down. He says, why are you saying that? Why are you saying, well, if the father's an alcoholic, the children will be alcoholic. The father's liar, the children will be liars. If the father's abusive, the kids will be abusive. Why are you saying that, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree kind of mentality? He says, why are you saying that? Notice what he goes on to verse three. As I live, declares the Lord your God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. He said, I want you to know that everybody is going to be responsible for their own life. Now that's what he's going to get into. And we're going to skip down to verse 14 and start picking that up. He's going to say, if the son sins, then you know what? He's responsible. You can't blame the dad. If the dad sins, you can't blame the son and you can't hold the son accountable for it. Everybody needs to take responsibility. Why? God says, because I'm going to set you free. I have the ability to break that curse. I have the ability for you not to be that way. That's what God is saying. And look what it says in verse 14. Now behold, 
He's talking about a father who's sinful and deceitful and despicable. He goes, he, that father, has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed and observing them does not do likewise. Now that's the context. Now verse 17, go down there. But he executes my ordinances, walks in my statutes. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did not do what is good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, God's talking to the children of Israel, goes, yet you say this, why should the son not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity? Back then they thought, well, you know, if the family did this, then everybody ought to be held accountable for it. Why shouldn't that be the case? And it goes, when the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, God says, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be on himself. Now, what God is saying is this, it's incredible. He says, I will not hold you accountable for your parents did. I will not visit it upon you if you would turn to me. You can not only be free from that family curse, you're not responsible for what your family's done. You now are new. You have a chance for a new start. You have a chance to be a new creation. And what you need to do is understand you can be set free. Uh, The first weekend in December, we're going to have a man here who's going to talk about being set free. By the way, if you think your family's bad, a lot of people said, why are we having uh, Michael Francis in December? And if you're not sure who he is, uh, Michael Francis was a part of the mafia. As a matter of fact, as far as known uh, uh, today, no one made more money for the mafia than Michael Francis. And he was arrested and put in prison for it. And, and here's the good news. He's a born again Christian and, and he's going to come talk about it. And, and, and here's what I'm saying is, is in December, if you think your family's bad, wait till you hear about his family. You're going to feel better about yours. And, and, but here's the other thing you're ready is he is free today. He's a new creation in Christ. God has set him free. Matter of fact, they offered him witness protection because he's uh, turned state's evidence against the Colombo crime family. And he refused it. He said, well, if I die, I just go to heaven. You can't be freer than that. So he's coming and he'll be sharing an amazing testimony. But God set him free. And here's the thing you're going to hear more than ever. He today is not the person he was. He today is not living out the life he did. He today has been transformed completely. And God's great desire is for you and I to be transformed completely and to experience that. You need to do it. I can do it. I uh, one time was talking with a man and he said to me, Chuck, you know, I, I really want to grow spiritually. Uh, uh, can you help me? And, and back then when I was in that position, I was doing that with a lot of people. And so I began to teach him how to have quiet time and things. But I'll never forget one day I walked into church and I looked over and I saw and the worship was incredible and awesome. And he just stood like this. And so after church, I said, well, you know, how much do you want me to pour into you? I mean, how, how much do you, how radical do you want your transformation to be? How Christ-like do you want to be? He said, man, I want it. He goes, give it to me. I said, all right. I said, you got to learn to worship, man. He goes, well, yeah. I, and I said, don't you understand? And by the way, I, I don't know if you're aware of this. The most used word for worship in the Bible is the word halal. Like I said, it was used about the Pharaoh's people about Sarah. Well, halal literally means to be raven, uh, to act like a raving fool. It means to be out there. In other words, there's no way I can worship like this and and be hilaling. I can't stand there. I've got to be, something's got to be exploding out of me. It's like if I walked up today and said, you know, I love you. Let me give you a million dollars. I have a feeling you wouldn't go. Thank you. You'd be, oh, you know, Chuck's the greatest guy ever. You know, and, and when you see how that's, how, that's what Hillel is, it just explodes out of you. And I said, you're not doing that. And here's what he said. He said, 
but that's not me. I said, really? He goes, yeah, that, that's, you know, Chuck, that's you. You're an enthusiastic, that's just not me. And I said, really? I said, well, I want to ask you a question. Is it not you, the new you, the born again you in Jesus Christ? Or is it not you because that's how you were raised? He said, well, that's just how my family was. We just, I said, but wait a minute. Now that you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Now that you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Now that you're in Christ, you're to be like Christ and transformed. When you say that's not me, what you're doing is you're reverting back to the, the old you. And I want to challenge you to be the new you. I want to challenge you to be that person. By the way, I said I, I had some other things to talk with him about. I, I don't think you're showing affection to your wife the way you should. Well, that's just not me. Well, no, no, no. You're supposed to be a person filled with love, and you should pour that out. Uh, I, sometimes you've got to be honest, man. You, you're, you're a joy killer. And I know, I know your mom and dad, and I know where you got it from. And I've got to be honest. I don't want to be around your mom either. And... Uh, but why are you, you don't like that about her. And now you're doing it to your kids. And he agreed. He actually admitted it. He goes, you know, I know that's true. He goes, I know it's true. And he goes, I find myself reverting back and doing it. And deep down, I don't like it. And I didn't like it when it was done to me. And I said, all right, you got to do it. Man, I got to tell you, it was so wild. I had such a good time. I've, I've got to say, in all my days of worship, I maybe never enjoyed more worship than the next weekend we got together watching him do this. He was just raising the, I killed him. It killed him. I felt like someone ought to hold him up for him. You know, and, uh, and the first time he walked up to hug his wife, he walked up and he hugged her and he kissed her on the cheek and she looked and goes, what did you do wrong? You know, and, uh, you know, but, but it about killed the guy. But I, I want you to think about that. Who are you today? Who are you today? If you're a born-again Christian, are you living out what it means to be Christ-like? See in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 and 17, it says, Therefore, now we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him in this way no longer. Now listen to where it goes. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. In other words, I don't know who you are today, but I can tell you who God wants you to be. He wants you to be a person of joy and a person of love and a person of self-control. Uh, he wants you to be somebody who has amazing peace that passes understanding. Are you ready for this? He wants an absence of fear in your life. He wants you to be a courageous person, uh, a passionate person. He wants you to be an intentional person. You were created to be like Jesus. And, and when you and I focus on him, then it begins to transform us. That's why in Hebrews 12, it says that we are to look to Jesus. And the word look there means you're to stare at him, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And the more you copy him and the more you live like him, the more your life is going to take on the freedom and the joy that you were created for. You were made to be like Christ. You were made to be a child of God. You were made to be more than a conqueror. And that's who God wants you to be. 